Hello there, and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast from the 23rd of September. On the programme today, we spoke to the CEO of Dubai Cares about why they want to entirely transform how children are taught. We also heard from the principal of Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai, Claire Turnbull, who told us how they're keeping up to date with the latest teaching trends. Meanwhile, school trips have restarted at the Expo site. We found out what students will see with Marjan Faradouni, the World Fair's Chief Visitor Experience Officer. And as legislators in California ban high schools from starting lessons any earlier than 8.30am, we spoke to a sleep professor about why schools should start later. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 8. Hello there, welcome back to the programme. Now, all this week, we've been following the high-level talks taking place between world leaders at the United Nations General Assembly. And we've also heard from the sidelines where many thousands of NGOs, charities and business people have also gathered in New York to network, raise money and do business. And while the UAE has sent a big diplomatic delegation, there's also several other non-governmental organisations from Dubai in the city this week. And one of them is Dubai. Cares, which launched its vision for fundamentally changing global education at the UN's Transforming Education Summit. Their report, which is named Rewiring Education for People and Planet, offers six win-win solutions to rewire the thinking, acting and doing around education. That three-day summit was convened by the UN Secretary-General, His Excellency Antonio Guterres, in response to what the UN calls an ongoing silent crisis in education, in particular post the pandemic. Now, earlier I spoke to the Chief Executive Officer and Vice Chairman of Dubai Cares, His Excellency Dr Tarek Al-Gurg, and he said that the UN General Assembly is a key part of their campaign to fundamentally change education. The education sector has been neglected. So there is an issue. And we've been coming here for more than a decade with a lot of stakeholders and partners and strategic partners that includes UN and non-UN to reposition education again. But our job this UNGA is totally different because of the Transforming Education Summit. And that is a summit that is spearheaded by the United Nations Secretary General. And this is the first time ever that the United Nations calls upon all member states. And that starts with the heads of state of these countries to start talking about transforming education once and for all. Not to enhance, not to have education as a priority, but to transform education because the systems today, and COVID showed it to us, the system that we have, have today that has been placed over a century ago, the system is failing and the system is broken and we need to change it. Now, I know that Dubai Cares has given this a great deal of thought and you have a a panel of experts who have looked at exactly how education should be rewired, but it's really quite an esoteric subject. So I'd love it if you could outline the key tenets of what you think needs to be changed in education to make it fit for purpose for Industry 4.0. We came here this year, as I told you, on a certain agenda on the transformation. And because Dubai Cares and the Rewired Summit, the one we hosted last December at Expo, the summit brought a lot of voices from the world, not only government, not only UN. 
and our job to be part of the transformation, the first thing we did was we have put the uh, outcome report of the Rewired Summit. So with that, we had to partner with an agency and we partnered with the Education Summit and we finalized the report. And if we're talking about what needs to be done right now for the transformation to happen, we identified the top six solutions to that. We call them the win-win solutions. The report, we named it Rewiring Education for People and Planet. So we're not looking at education as a as a whole, but we are linking it with human development, with the future of our planet, and how and how we should start from now looking into uh, green skills and green jobs for not only the planet, but how can youth and children from now, if they're instilled with the right skills, even values, and give them the right experience, moving from ideation to creation, and then to knowledge. That will be the best way on how to transform education. So one of them is the early start. So early childhood development, we have to make sure that children from birth until preschooling, uh, they have good health. They have been eating uh, nutritious meals uh, as well as parental care. And then the preschooling comes uh, next. So we prepare the child for the school. School meals are really important. So we emphasize globally that we have to have school meals. We emphasize on green jobs and skills that has to be created from now for the future jobs and the fourth industrial revolution and whatever the, the planet is going through changes due to global warming and climate. These are the main ones that we focused on, but there's a cross-cutting throughout everything, which is financing. Financing has become a huge issue. Education globally is not getting the right attention and positioning it deserves. And countries should all know that without education, we will not be able to invent anything in life and move up a scale or two for the prosperity of human development. It's an incredibly ambitious plan because you're not just doing it on a, on a country basis or a regional basis, but you're really attempting to encourage this on, on a global basis. Do you think that it's going to work? Do I think personally, is it going to work? Yeah, of course. I mean, everything we embarked upon Georgia has worked because it's carefully planned. We're working with the right partners in the world. One chunk are the usual suspects, but we also, through Reward, we were able to get uh, new allies. I'm not going to say new organizations, but new allies, organizations who were hidden, no one knew about them, and through the cares programs in, in the 60 countries that we exist in, we met a lot of organizations and taking these voices alongside the, the strategy that has been set with the Transforming Education Summit, spearheaded by the Secretary General of the United Nations, if all heads of state commit and all ministers of education, they have their heart into the transformation. Again, not tweaking the education system, not updating or upgrading, transforming it completely based on the guidelines and the metrics that will be shown to the world in the next several months after the test, then yes, we, I'm, I'm very optimistic on the change. And, and guess what? The clock is ticking. We have eight years to 2030 until the SDGs end. I'm sure there will be another version of the SDGs. But you see, Georgia, let's get the utmost countries from now until 2030. If we can get 25 to 50 countries at least transforming education, then those countries are setting an example for the other countries to follow. We have a lot of countries around the world from developing and developed nations looking into the transformation and working on the transformation. Don't forget, Finland. Finland has done it. Estonia has done it. China has done it. 
those three countries, they have the best education systems in the world. While the West is lagging, the Middle East is looking into the transformation. Africa is looking. Is there a one solution? No, it will be a customized one. But I'll end it here by telling you, Georgia, that the UAE could be one of the first countries that will perfect this transformation of education. And we have four strong ministers under the leadership of Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed, who are putting the whole spectrum of, of early childhood until youth empowerment towards skilling and towards graduation and towards jobs and income and uh, human capital, we have a system that is being customized right now in the UAE and hopefully you will hear the news more. I mean, that's hugely exciting. I've got two children in the education system here, so, so I'm, I'm very pleased with the idea they might be on the forefront of that. Can I ask my final question to you? You know, why Dubai Cares decided to focus on education in particular? Because, you know, you could have chosen any philanthropic venture. You know, we've seen a lot of climate action from billionaires just recently. For example, we've seen lots of other charities get involved with solving tropical diseases. Why did Dubai Cares decide to go with education as a main focus? We didn't, Georgia. It was His Highness, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum. I mean, he established Dubai Cares for a reason. If we go back to 2007, when His Highness, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum, started Dubai Cares, he started it for a reason. He saw something. There was an announcement that happened, and he didn't like. You remember the MDGs? That was before the SDGs. It was set mm -hmm. in the year 2000, a 15-year target, eight goals, the Millennium Development Goals that ended in 2015. Well, guess what? In 2005, the United Nations announced that MDG2, which was about access to education in developing countries, in 2005, when they met again, just to see as a 10-year countdown where they are, the UN announced that MDG2 will never be achieved by 2015, which is they will never get a universal access of children to education by 2015. And that's where exactly Sheikh Mohammed picked it up in 2005. And in two years, he established Dubai Cares to be a global organization based in the Middle East, working towards changing education globally. So it's his highness, to be honest with you. And as you know, the secret recipe of the success of the UAE are two. One, our leadership believes and they believed in education. And number two, putting all hope on the youth. And you have seen how His Highness is depending on the youth for the future of the country. It's not just depending on the mid-aged or the elderly and the experienced and the wise people only, but he's embedding the youth. And for those two reasons, with his belief, that's why he started Dubai Cares to be an example of how the UAE did it and how Dubai Cares can go to countries, change their systems, and then expand towards youth empowerment and, and skills and jobs. His Excellency Dr. Tarek Al-Gurg, their Chief Executive Officer and Vice Chairman of Dubai Cares. Right, up next, we will be turning our attention uh, to the grassroots of education right here in the UAE. We'll be speaking to Claire Turnbull, the Principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, who will be telling us exactly how they keep up to date with the latest teaching trends. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. 
Hello there. Welcome back. 11.39. Now, Dubai Cares is looking to fundamentally change how and what children are thought. Uh, we just heard uh, from His Excellency Dr. Tarek Algerg, the CEO of that organisation. And they first launched their plan to rewire education at Expo 2020. They've just launched their latest report at the United Nations Transforming Education Summit. It's called Rewiring Education for People and Planet. And the study offers six win-win solutions to rewire the thinking, acting and doing around education. They're pretty simple uh, win-win solutions. Things like expanding early childhood programs to end poverty, uh, develop team-based education workforce for good health and well-being, scale adaptive, inclusive and engaging teaching to reduce inequalities. Uh, Lots of school meals uh, are suggested uh, to encourage health and well-being create diverse and certifiable routes for young people to build skills and to promote inclusive and sustainable economic growth. And this is an interesting one. Adapt education systems to build climate resilience and develop green skills. Okay, but how practical are those to actually implement in the schools, in the classrooms. Joining me now to discuss the realities of changing education on the ground is Claire Turnbull, the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Claire, good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you today? Well, I'm very well indeed, thank you. Uh, I I have to say, I find, uh, because you're from the profession, I'm sure you find these types of documents just sort of fascinating and totally comprehensible. But I have to say, it feels quite esoteric to me. And when somebody says that they want to completely rewire children's education, I have to say, I start to get a tiny bit nervous. I mean, I'm reassured (laughs) because, you know, I'm sure they know what they're doing. Um, But I do, you know, I'm used, I'm not sure I like change <laughs> I mean do you think it does I mean you're you're on the front you're on the front line of this do you think education does need to be radically rewired to prepare our children for the future do you know I think globally uh, there the, and remember that these documents are written for a global market not a specific market here for the uh, the UAE um, we've all got a place to 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 play in this and the UAE is already at the forefront of change and of making sure our education systems are innovative. So I think globally there are we should always be looking at it. Do I think it needs to be rewired here? Not in schools who have always been research-based and looking for the best of education uh, that we can learn from other countries, we can learn from ourselves. And that's certainly what we do here at the Royal Grammar School, Guildford Dubai. But I know it's what the UAE do. They're hungry and we are hungry to look for the best and not to be stuck in education that was a century ago. So, no, I don't think our schools here need to be rewired. What we need is a consistent approach across uh, uh, globally to to try and sort out some of the inequalities in education. Absolutely. Now, one of the major elements that were suggested in this report are that children need to be prepared for a world where climate change is going to dominate the landscape. Now, is that something that you're already doing at RGS? I thought it was fascinating that that he brought up the idea that people are going to need careers in this sector. 
Absolutely. Um, so yes, it's something that is it, it's has been part of the curriculum. Um, I, I would say for a, a good four to five years in the majority of schools, and it's something that's very, very strong out here. Um, it comes from conversations. If you ask some of our three and four year olds of um, what what you want to be when you grow up it is fantastic that they will start using the the words i want to be a climate scientist what does that mean gosh that's fantastic and they say oh it's a new job it's a new job but we need to take control mrs turnbull so that we can make sure our future's safe what fantastic language that our young people are using you know looking at the science of hydroponics of um all of you know still recycling all of those things on a very base level but then also aspirationally knowing that their careers a lot of them are going to be in this. I spoke to a year six pupil who is wants to be a lawyer and I said that's fantastic. Do you have any idea what? Yeah, I, I want to be a climate change lawyer and I went goodness gracious what does that mean and they've already worked out well I want to go out and challenge companies that aren't quite getting this right or showcase how to do it. So I do think it's something that is very much there already in great schools. So another one of their six win-win solutions was to scale adaptive, inclusive and engaging teaching. Uh, how do you ensure that your teaching is, I suppose, in inverted commas, modern at RGS? Yeah, absolutely. But again, I think that goes from action research, isn't it? That um, I, I've been lucky enough in uh, never to work in a school that's not forward thinking but forward thinking is about right are the better ways of learning because actually if we concentrate on the learning rather than the teaching then we're empowering our children um, so you walk around the corridors here as you would in any of the outstanding schools in uh, in Dubai, you will see different learning strategies going on that suit different children, that suit different tasks. Um, and all the time, teachers and professionals are going, oh, shall we try this? What about this? Um, you know, have you seen this works particularly well in Finland? What about this that's coming out of uh, this country or that country? Let's try it. So, I don't think it's about modern teaching. I think it's about having highly professional practitioners who are really keen on being the best they can be for our young people. Really lovely to hear about the work you do there. Claire, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the programme. Really appreciate your time. As always, Claire Turnbull, the principal there of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom. Now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 8. Hello there, welcome back. 11.54. Now, school tours have restarted at the Expo site, but what will students be able to see? To answer that question and much more, I'm joined now by Marjan Faradouni, the Expo 2020 Dubai's Chief Visitor Experience Officer, who is now, of course, in charge of Expo City Dubai. A great pleasure and honour to have you on the radio. I know you're incredibly busy, Marjan. Thank you for your time. Hello. Thank you, Georgia. Always good to see you and hear you. It's an absolute pleasure. Now tell me, what can school groups visit in Expo City Dubai at the moment? To start with, I'm really excited to welcome uh, with the team uh, students 
back to the expo site less than five months since we've closed our doors. Uh, when they come today, they can actually visit the Sustainability Pavilion, Pavilion Terra, and Elif, the Mobility Pavilion. And very soon on October 1st, they can visit Vision Pavilion and the Women's Pavilion uh, as part of the offerings that we have for them. So I actually came last weekend to uh, on a private visit to the Mobility Pavilion. Unbelievably, we hadn't been before with the children and they absolutely loved it. Uh, obviously, we were just as a family, but what can they expect to sort of learn and what can they expect to see on their school trip to Expo City Dubai? So clearly, um, you know, with the expo being over, we have less pavilions for uh, students to see, but we're going to have a lot more engaging workshops and programs within their visits to these pavilions. So, for example, we've launched around six workshops across Elif and uh, and uh, Terra Pavilion, and we've already been able to welcome 500 students who participated in, to- in a total of 10 workshops. These workshops are uh, continuing on the in-depth uh, conversations that we'd like to have with the school kids around the environment, water conservation, animal habitats, biodiversity, technology and robotics. So um, this is all part of the uh, newly launched school program, if you will. So it's complemented with very engaging workshops and programs in addition to the immersive exhibits um, that um, we have at Terra and Ellen. What's the best age group for this? If we've got teachers who might have skipped out of school four minutes early, what's the the best age group for head teachers to be thinking about? So we're open for all age groups. Uh, So we cater to from kindergarten up until, um, uh, you know, uh, high school. So it's open to all uh, kids of all uh, age groups. So everyone is welcome here. And I also want to mention we do have a a surprise um, Uh, attraction that we're going to be launching very soon specifically for the little ones that will be offered to school. So we're excited about that and we hope that uh, you stay tuned to to know what that is. Oh, that's very exciting because I know that, well, in the past, Expo, I, I literally have no idea what it is, but I know that in the past, one of the things my children loved the most uh, was obviously the Opti robot and they were very disappointed not to see them the last time we were in mobility. So if there's any votes for the Optis to make a return, uh, my hands are up for that. Um, and now... <laughs> If you could, just as a personal request, maybe I should start some sort of campaign, some sort of online petition, bring back Opti or something like that. Yeah, we'll be. Don't worry, George. (laughs) Thank you very much. Now, um, as far as you hinted to it there, uh, but is there a broader education plan in the works for when Expo City officially opens in October? Because there will be more to see then, won't there? Absolutely. So, like I said, we've already started with this uh, new education program, following up from our success at Expo, where we welcomed more than one million students. Um, their uh, majority, uh, the additions of the workshops, and we'll be continuing continuing to do that. And in the future, we'll also be looking at having new exhibitions that would welcome um, uh, students and families. Uh, one of which would hopefully be the Expo Museum that we're looking to launch next year, which was previously the location of the Opportunity Pavilion. We're working on designs around that. So it's really in-depth um, uh, you know, uh, discoveries and uh, into the topics of um, sustainability, uh, mobility in the future, culture. Um, so we're working very hard on, on complementing the amaz- amazing exhibits that we have with these workshops and programs. And um, I'd like to mention that uh, entry to the exhibitions are free of uh, charge for all students, um, but we do charge for the workshops and the information is all available on our website around that. But 
the key in terms of what we're doing here at Expo City is we want to make sure that these programs and, and workshops are accessible uh, to everyone, considering the uh, global topics that we are um, uh, addressing in our exhibitions. Absolutely fantastic, as ever, to speak to you. Thank you so much, Marjan Faradouni, uh, who is, of course, the Chief Visitor Experience Officer, uh, previously at Expo 2020 Dubai, and now, of course, at Expo City Dubai. Thank you so much for your time, as ever. It was brilliant to have you on the radio. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 8. Hello there, welcome back. It is 12.05. Now, for many pupils here in the UAE, getting to school on time means an early wake up, rushing to get ready and maybe arriving at school day, for the school day a little bit sleepy. And recent studies have shown that those in their teenage years could be fighting their natural body clocks. So could a later school start help make teenagers happier and more attentive at school? We would love to hear from you on this topic. Please do get in touch with your views. Uh, 4001 is the text or, of course, you can WhatsApp us 04871 Jennifer's also got in touch saying in the late 90s, Harvard moved their first classes of the day from 8am to 9am. My stepsister benefited from such, while I, across the river, suffered from mental fogginess throughout my 8 o'clock lectures. Now, producer Andrew Hosey has been looking into this story and he joins me in the studio now. Yes, this is a fascinating topic, isn't it? I think everyone's got memories of their school days. I was rubbish at getting up, I have to say. <laughs> I'm an early bird, so I'm always all right. Um, I'm smug. <laughs> I mean, our, our school, well, my school didn't start till nine o'clock, and even that I thought was way too early, but there we go. We actually have real-life pilot studies now of sorts because legislators in the state of California have banned schools from starting earlier than 8.30 a.m. This is the first law of its kind in the U.S., but other states, including New York and New Jersey, are considering similar measures for teens. To find out more about this, I spoke to Beth Mallow, who's a neurologist and sleep expert at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. She's part of a research team assessing teenage sleep patterns. And first, for background, I asked her what a typical school day is like for an American student. So for the majority of American students, school starts before eight o'clock. Eight o'clock is kind of the average time. So you can think of it as for every student that starts after eight or at eight, there's a student who starts at eight or below before eight. And that's really hard for a lot of students, particularly teenagers, because of their biological clocks tend to go to bed later. So they're really at risk of getting their sleep cut short if they're going to bed later and then they have to wake up early for school. Or why do schools start so early? It seems that kids would have to get up much earlier, of course, to get ready, uh, get to school. So it's an early start for families across the country. I think the main reason is logistics, like, for example, buses. If you only have so many buses and and lots of kids, you have to send the buses out first to pick up some of the kids and then come back and get more of the kids. And there's this sense of like, well, we should let the younger kids, you know, go later and let the teenagers go earlier because they're older, they're more mature, whatever. But actually, it's the opposite. Like if you had to split up your school and say we're going to take half the kids early and half the kids later, it's actually the the, the younger kids, like the five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-olds, who are wide awake earlier because they haven't gone through puberty yet. And it's the teenagers who 
are dragging themselves to get into school at eight o'clock or earlier. They're the ones who really need the later start time, but people just don't know that. They don't understand, you know, they, they just haven't been exposed to sleep and biological rhythms and understanding all of that. What's the reason then, as we're growing older, as you said, you mentioned puberty there, uh, what happens to our bodies with regards to our sleep patterns yes. as we reach the teenage years? Yes. So uh, the biggest thing that happens is we have a delay in our melatonin levels. We all make natural melatonin, not the kind that you would get from a doctor or the health food store or whatever, or the supermarket. We make our own natural levels of melatonin. And these are released at night when the sun goes down, when it gets dark. And you need light to be gone in order to release your melatonin levels. It's, it's a hormone of darkness. Uh, and what happens in puberty is everything gets shifted two to three hours. So that let's say normally a eight-year-old might have their melatonin release at eight o'clock at night and then they're ready for bed or well, even earlier, like seven o'clock at night and they're ready for bed, let's say at nine o'clock. Uh, and they're ready to go to sleep. Well, with a teenager, because everything's delayed, by the time their melatonin is released, it's more like nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, and then they're not ready to go to bed until let's say midnight or even later. Now, this isn't every teenager, but it's a lot of them. And then the other thing that happens is there's another kind of like, as the day goes on, we build up different chemicals in our brains, and that makes us sleepy. In fact, Having a cup of coffee gets rid of those chemicals, which is why coffee is so alerting. Well, what happens with the teenage years is that buildup becomes slower. So we don't get as sleepy as the day goes on. It's, it's a much slower drive to sleep. And then you can also throw in things like cell phones and chats and social media and too much homework and other extracurricular activities like band practice. And by the time you're done, we really are dealing with very, very tired, sleepy teenagers. So the whole stereotype of the rebellious teenager is almost actually, by the sounds of it, biologically built in. It is biologically built in. I'm not going to deny that the cell phones and the social media and the chatting and the Facebook and Twitter or whatever they're doing, Instagram, isn't playing a role. It is. But a lot of teenagers will actually tell me that they get on their phones at night because they can't sleep rather than the other way around. And then getting on your phone and getting exposed to all that blue light, that bright light from your phone kind of adds insult to injury and makes everything worse. But the primary driver in all of this, the thing that gets it started is that um, biological differences when you become a teenager and you go through puberty. How many hours should a healthy teenager be getting sleep-wise per night? At least eight to nine hours. Some people need more, but we shoot for about eight and a half to nine hours. What problems occur if someone isn't getting the correct amount of sleep overnight? There's a lot of different things that happen. Um, we see things like just not being able to focus in school, attention deficit disorder or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, depression, anxiety, obesity. There's a lot of um, evidence now that when you don't get enough sleep, it causes you to change your metabolism and gain weight. All those things are, are issues when we don't get enough sleep. 
this all sounds great, you know, just, uh, okay, let's all make school start later, finish a bit later, have uh, time for kids to get the amount of sleep they need. But in the modern world, that's very difficult to achieve, isn't it? It is. If we could ideally get kids to sleep more and use blackout curtains and light boxes in the morning and do all of the stuff, we may be fine, but it's really, really hard in the real world. So the ability to make school start later is huge because then you're really changing something on a population level. And a lot of people say, well, they're just going to stay up later, but actually the, the data show that when you start school later, kids go to sleep at the same time that they were, but they get to sleep in, you know, maybe 30 minutes more. And that 30 minutes more can make a huge difference in how they feel, how productive they are, how alert they are at school. It just changes everything. What about if we throw in climate issues, uh, cultural norms? Here in the UAE, of course, it's very hot throughout the day, particularly in summer. The least thing you want to do is be out in the summer heat. So for a lot of people, it makes sense uh, for the kids to have to try and get a nap in the afternoon when the day is at its hottest and then start uh, going out, having their dinner a bit later on when the full family is together. So for a lot of people, the evening is when the socializing happens. That's going to obviously be a major factor in people's day-to-day lives. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very healthy what you're talking about. And I know that in Europe, people also take that siesta after lunch. I think that in the U.S., we, we tend to be very go, go, go. So it's very unusual for kids to do that. I think what happens with kids is they'll stay in school all day and then they'll have all these extracurricular activities after school, like band practice or chorus or different clubs. So they really are not getting a chance to get that nap in. And I do think that nap is very healthy. I know for my kids, they would come home from school and take a nap and then they'd be better for the rest of the day and and all. So, you know, I think that would be, that that is one solution. Unfortunately, in our country, people just don't seem to adhere to that nap. Maybe we're just a very driven country, I don't know, (laughs) culture. So that was uh, Beth Mallow there, a neurologist and sleep expert at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. What I thought was interesting there, uh, getting a nap actually is a good idea. I tend to shun napping. Do you? I'm a big napping fan. Massive fan. Is that because you feel woozy afterwards? I just feel it kind of wastes the day, but apparently maybe it's the best thing to do to reinvigorate myself to get more done a little bit later on. Good on, good on you. Well, well done. We're going to hear a little bit more from Beth uh, in uh, just after the break uh, because she had plenty more to say, plenty more advice for parents of teenagers. Uh, in the meantime, please do get in touch about what you think regarding what time school should start, whether you think it should be a bit later than it is here in the UAE. We've had a huge number of people get in touch already. Strong emotions about this. Uh, send the text in to 4001 uh, or you can WhatsApp us on 04871 uh, Let's have a look at this message. So Ravi says school should start at four and sorry, should start at nine and end at four. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day uh, with present early timings. Lots of children have to skip breakfast or they end up just having a hurried sandwich. Uh, Meanwhile, Liv says 100% I'm in for a later start for the sleep family time factor and also it might mean the school day runs a little later and that would benefit all of us, especially working parents. 
Katie says, I would welcome later start. Uh, Layla says, my daughters are six and eight. I would absolutely love our school to start later. I love it in particular during Ramadan, when we do Ramadan hours. It's extremely hard when the children have extra activity squads starting at 6.30am. Andrew Hosey, would you get up at 6.30 for an early morning swim? No. <laughs> this is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 8. Welcome back to the programme. It is 12.24. Georgia Tolly here, but I've also got producer Andrew Hosey in the studio with me. Uh, and he's been studying rather a fascinating educational story. Yes, I've been speaking to Beth Mallow, who is a neurologist and sleep expert at Vanderbilt University Medical Centre in Nashville, who is part of a research team assessing teenage sleep patterns. She advocates that schools should start later in the morning as teenagers naturally need more sleep and are naturally predisposed to waking up later and going to sleep later. This is all after a California state law has been introduced to protect most high school students from having to start class before 8.30am, the first law of its kind in the US. Now, we were discussing before the break how taking a nap in the day could negate some of the effects sleep deprivation has on teenagers. I think if the nap were to be strategically placed after lunch, like one o'clock, it could give the teens that extra hour of sleep that they desperately need that they're not getting at night. And then what that would do is allow them to be more well-rested. When you nap too late in the day, then it could get rid of that drive to sleep that I was talking about earlier. But I think an, an early afternoon nap would probably be okay. You mentioned the physical effects of lack of sleep. What about effects mentally, not getting enough sleep throughout the night and driving yourself throughout the day? How does that affect people mentally? Yeah, so well, I think mental is important as physical. It's our ability to focus, to concentrate, to remember. In school, our ability to learn is really affected when we're sleep deprived. We're just people's grades are not as good. Um, it's you really need to get to have a good night's sleep in order to concentrate. And people have actually shown that when you cram and you pull all nighters, you don't retain your material as well as when you've actually slept, even if you study as much during the day. So that process of sleep is really important for memory consolidation and for learning. Has there been any studies based on what's happened in the pandemic when uh, people were forced to learn and work at home, maybe not uh, using up as much energy that may lead to a lack of sleep? Also trying to cope with the abrupt changes that happen to all our lifestyles. Yes. In some ways, it's been a positive because with the homeschooling, kids could sleep in. In other words, when they were doing everything remote and they didn't have to like drive to school or take the bus, that's been huge. But there's also been this like messing up your routine, so to speak, not being able to wake up at the same time every day, not being able to go to the gym if the gym was closed, not having to have certain social activities. So I think it's been a balancing act just for adults between some of the positives, which are that you're not struggling to be somewhere really early And then some of the negatives, which have been the lack of routine, which can certainly contribute uh, to poor sleep. 
So if we're looking at circadian rhythms again with teenagers and reading that this report suggests that uh, teenagers, their energies are the highest in the evening, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the evening, starting a little bit later on in the morning at school. Is that really going to help out with the purely biological problems? I think it does because like there's two things. There's the sleep amount and there's a circadian like biological clock effect. So it's not just that they're not ready to go to bed at 11 o'clock at night, you know, or they need to be in bed by midnight or one o'clock and they're just not ready to go to bed, I guess, at 10 o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night. But they're also not ready to be fully awake at 7.30. Their brains are not fully awake and you can't even compensate for that with sleep. It's, it's how we're wired biologically. So I think that's helped by the later school start times. And then the idea too is that research is showing that these kids are sleeping in. So they're also closer to getting eight and a half to nine hours of sleep if we allow them to sleep in, especially if they're not taking naps like they do in the UAE. If I remember from my school days, um, and I don't know if it's the same now because my school days were a very long time ago, but I seem to remember that the, let's say, more academic subjects tended to be taught in the morning and your more artistic music side, sports side of things tend to be left until after the lunch break. Is there any kind of thought that maybe flipping that round might help out? It's a really good thought. Um, I do think that could help in two ways. I think one is it could help because the kids would be more fully awake. The other reason it could help is let's say they needed to not be their first period because they needed to sleep in for whatever reason. You know, if you miss gym class, maybe you could make it up by running around the block at home or come up with some other thing. I think the challenge though is with so many kids in school, you end up with these logistic issues where the teacher only has so many classes and they need to kind of spread it out during the day. So I think part of the time is these logistical things and trying to make the school work for as many kids as possible gets in the way of what's the healthiest thing and what's the best for learning. Fascinating insights there from Beth Mallow, a neurologist and sleep expert at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. Thank you, Andrew. Now, would you like school to start later? Do get in touch and please say how old your children are in your answer, because I think uh, the parents of teenagers uh, might want their classes to start later, whereas because my kids wake up at 6am, I'm quite happy to get them off at school nice and early. Uh, Lots of messages coming in from people. We've got one here from Lilia, who says, I definitely think starting later is better for kids. I experienced different schooling systems when I was a teen, and when I moved to France, I felt exactly exhausted in high school starting at eight and finishing at six and having tests every Saturday morning as well was definitely exhausting, giving us no time at all for extracurricular activities. Get in touch.